So I am excited about uh, starting a new series that we're calling The Kingdom. We are going to walk between here and Easter looking at what it means to be a part of the kingdom. The New Testament talks a lot about this concept of the kingdom, but what's interesting about it is that it's a little bit of a stretch for us because in our culture, we don't have a natural connect to the concepts of king and monarchy and kingdom, etc. It's just, it's just not the way we function. It's like the uh, a scene from the Holy Grail, if you remember the Monty Python movie and and so the king walks up to the peasant farmers and, uh, and, and says, I am your king. And, uh, and remember, anybody remember what one of the farmers says? He says, I know you know it. We didn't vote for you, and, which is awesome. And he says, you don't vote for a king. And so, see, that's kind of some of our uh, experience and understanding is how does the whole kingship thing work? It's very foreign to us. Many of us are very interested and opinionated about politics, and we could have a very heated conversation, and there's a number of different viewpoints represented here in this room about politics and how things should be run and what's the best thing and what's the way that God may want things to be run, etc. But all of those conversations are limited to our experience of democracy, our experience of republic. And so the whole concept of, of kingship is foreign to us. How can we understand what the kingdom is if we have so little experience with the concept of an earthly kingdom, of a king, of, the, of, of a civilization running under that kind of system? And so we're going to uh, head into this. And uh, one of the things I'm excited about this journey is that it goes beyond Sunday morning with our daily experience through the journal. We have a new journal that we're gonna walk through over the next seven weeks. Uh, does anyone have a journal that I could borrow? Jerry, can I borrow your journal? Oh, this one's closer, sorry. Then I have to walk less distance, so okay. So, so uh, thank you so much for lending your journal. I'm gonna read a little bit of what she's written. Um, <laughs> No, okay, okay, so, so the journal, the journal is, a, an, uh, is an experience over the next seven weeks, and it has uh, some readings in here for you to participate in on a daily basis and just answer a few questions. It, ju- it just takes about five minutes a day to just kind of engage with it. It's just kind of a dripping of the, of the concept, the topic of kingdom, to engage with it on, on a regular basis. Uh, There is a section uh, once a week called Table Conversations, and the intent of that is that you would walk through a series of questions with a group of people. That could be a group of friends. It could be your family. Uh, We have, around here, we have a number of small groups that gather together and just walk through the, the, the journey together. If you are interested in being a part of one of those groups, uh, they are open, and there's a number of them that would love to have you participate. You can go on our website and learn more about those groups, or you can just head out into the lobby at the white marble table, and they have a list of groups that are available, and you can just contact someone on that list and and, uh, see if you can get involved with that. Now, these journals, if you are a guest with us here today, If you would just fill out the communication card, if you've already done that, you can fill out another one, (laughs) whatever, Uh, but you get uh, one of these journals for free if you would like. Even if this is just a one-time thing for you and you're just passing through, we'd love to give you one of these as a gift. Just, uh, we'd, we'd love to have your communication card and we'd exchange that for one of these. If this is your church home, 
then we do not want to take away the privilege for you to be able to pay $5 for one of these journals. And so if this is your regular uh, uh, place of worship, then uh, we ask that you would uh, purchase these for five bucks. It just covers cost of printing, etc. So please pick one of these up and, uh, and join the journey with us. So here you go. Thank you so much for lending. Appreciate that. Uh, so uh, so the, 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 the journey we're going on is called the kingdom. And in this journal, what we're doing is we're walking through the book of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament. I love the book of Matthew. I love that the New Testament starts off with the book of Matthew. I love that Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel writers. It was very important for Matthew who was one of the disciples, to make a connection between Jesus and the story of Jesus and the story that led up to Jesus. That Matthew makes a, uh, he's, he's writing to Jewish people and saying, this, is a, this flows from the, all the stories that you've learned and understood as, as a child. All of that stuff in the Old Testament, it flows into the person of Jesus. I love that Matthew does an incredible job with that. Uh, I love that Uh, Matthew has his own personal story of radical transformation. Matthew, if you remember, was a tax collector, which was a loathed profession in this culture because he was Jewish, but his job was to take money from Jewish people, from his own people, and then give it to the Romans who occupied that part of the world. So as a tax collector, he would take it from the Jewish people, take his own share and then give to Rome what was required to give to Rome. So he could kind of flex that amount and get extra for himself. And it's very likely that he was not poor when Jesus had made the radical call to him to lay everything down and follow him. He may have been the most wealthy of all the disciples because he was a tax collector. And so he could have had tremendous resources, tremendous uh, 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 journey that Jesus called him from, a radical transformation to say, uh, Matthew, I want you to drop it all. Follow me. That he understood from firsthand experience that what Jesus invites us into, the kingdom is an invasive experience. It invades every area of our lives. And Matthew absolutely understood this. So he starts to write his version of the story. And he talks about Jesus being tempted. And he talks about Jesus uh, being baptized. And then one of the first words that Jesus says in Matthew's version of the story is found in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. And the second half of that verse is all I'm looking at here this morning. Jesus says... Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. One of the first things that Matthew records Jesus saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is very similar to, if you have a Bible in front of you, just go one chapter back in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. John the Baptist says something very similar to this. He says, Repent, For the kingdom of heaven has come near. Do you see the similarities? It's very similar. John the Baptist says this exact thing. He's the one who came to prepare the way for Jesus. He says these exact words. Could you imagine being quoted by Jesus? How awesome would that be for John the Baptist to go, 
I said that. I totally said that. I said those exact words. Me. That'd be awesome. So John the Baptist says these words, repent. And then Jesus says them, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What we find in this short phrase, in this short sentence, is a command and then a reason for the command. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And this is reasonable for us because we want to have some kind of explanation if we are given a command. We don't typically just respond to a command. We want to know, okay, why? Why, is, why am I being asked to do this? Why should I do this? If you're in a mall and someone ran up to you frantic and just came right up to you and said, yell, yell really loud, how would you respond? Yeah, kind of furrowed faces and kind of you'd back up a little bit, get a little more space, put your children behind you. You know, you kind of protect and kind of back this up. That's a little bit odd. But if that person gave a reason, said, yell, yell as loud as you can because I can't find my two-year-old you'd have a very different response. Because it's not just the command, it's just I need to have some kind of sense, why? Why am I doing this? What's the, what's the purpose? What's happening? What has happened? Or what is about to happen? And so in this phrase, Jesus says, repent, and I'll get to that in just a minute. But what is about to happen is the kingdom. And again, this is something we're gonna look at over the next seven weeks. What is the kingdom? I wanna show a, a video from an organization called The Bible Project. And this is an incredible organization for the last number of years. They have been creating videos to help us understand different books of the Bible and different concepts in the Bible. And I found a, a video that they uh, put together on the, the topic of kingdom that I thought would be very helpful to take a look at. It's a little bit long, it's about five minutes, but I think it's worth our time. They uh, go back into the Old Testament and kind of get a big picture um, image of, of what the kingdom means to help us understand what it means that Jesus is king. Check this out. There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger, and he's running towards the city. He's running and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes, the feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? that despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. Yeah, so when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, 
they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger, bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right, but for Jesus, this is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom. And to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love. Hopefully that... Um kind of helps you understand this concept of Jesus as king. What's interesting uh, to me is that the disciples, the Jewish people who were following Jesus, they never referred to Jesus as king. It, that, that was, they never used that word to refer to Jesus. That for those disciples, those, those 12, for the 70, for the thousands who had gathered to listen to him, etc., they didn't call Jesus king. He was their rabbi. He was their teacher. In fact, there's this encounter that Jesus has with his disciples, and he asks them, who are people saying that I am? And so they give 
him a number of different responses and they say you're this and that and different titles, etc. And then Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter is the one who, who boldly speaks up and he says, you are the Messiah. He doesn't say king. Some versions say you are the Christ. Either way, Messiah or Christ, it is a spiritual thing. It is a, it, Jesus, you are the savior of the world. But it isn't this concept of, of king. It isn't a concept of a kingdom yet. The Jewish people do not refer to Jesus as king. You know who refers to Jesus as king? The only people who refer to Jesus as king in the story are the Romans. And they do it out of mockery. When Jesus is on the cross, there's a sign up above his head that says, King of the Jews. They're saying this is his crime, that he thinks he's the king. And so they're labeling him king of the Jewish people. This, it's the Romans are the ones who refer to him as king. And on that, on that Friday, when Jesus died, and the sky grew dark in the middle of the day, and the curtain was torn in two, and the earth shook, then the Romans and the Jewish people and all those who were there had gathered, had watched, had witnessed, that's when they realized, oh, there's, there's something more powerful here than a great rabbi. There's something way more powerful here than a spiritual leader. This is the king. Imagine that we could assemble the greatest leaders in the history of the world to gather around a table. Just imagine there's a big table here, and you could pick the greatest leaders that you could possibly imagine to gather here around this table in the history of the world. There might be Julius Caesar, who was the leader of the mighty Roman Empire. It might be George Washington, who, who was the first leader of this incredible American experiment. It might be uh, Mahatma Gandhi, who uh, led such an incredible part of the, uh, in India's freedom from, uh, from the British. Or it could be uh, Winston Churchill and his role in the Second World War. It could be uh, Martin Luther King and, and his role as a part of American history. You assemble the greatest leaders in the history of the world, assembling at one table. Who would be the head of that table? According to Scripture, Jesus would be at the head of that table because he's referred to as the king of all kings. The king of all of the kings. So you might say, I didn't vote for him. Well, you don't vote for a king. You don't vote for a king. He is the king because of an event in human history. If you could, just it's a little bit tricky perhaps in the darkness of the room, but look over in that corner. That cross sitting over there in the corner, sometimes it's up here on stage, that cross represents this moment in history where, as we saw in that video, where Jesus hung on that cross and he, in mockery, he wore the crown and in mockery, he had the robe uh, uh, um, put on him. And in mockery, he was referred to as king of the Jews. But in that moment in history, he was recognized, now he's always been king, but he was recognized by the world for the first time as the king of all kings. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus is king. 
He is the king of all kings. Now, Jesus says, early on in his ministry, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And it very much was near. It was within three years that that event in history happened where he was enthroned as the king before all to see. And so when he was saying, it, it is near, the kingdom of heaven is near. It's, it's three years this thing is going to happen. They have no idea what this is all about. He's just saying, it's coming, it's coming. But now here we are, almost 2,000 years later, March 2019, we don't, we don't even have to say the kingdom of, of heaven is coming. We get to say the kingdom of heaven is here because that event happened. Jesus is the king. That event happened. Now, there's an ongoing part of the kingdom where there's, it's happening more and more, and it's, it's hap- happening more and more on this earth, and Jesus asks us to pray, your kingdom come. May more and more of your kingdom infiltrate our communities, infiltrate, infiltrate our families, infiltrate our hearts. But overall, this kingdom is here. Jesus is king. The kingdom is here. So there's the reason. Let's go back to the command then. The command is repent. Now what do you think of when you hear the word repent? You might think of somebody on a street corner with a big sign, repent. Might even say these exact words. The kingdom of heaven has come near or the end is near or whatever. Repent, repent. And and a pointing finger and an angry fist and a furrowed brow. That's the way we might think of that. Because the word repent is, is a churchy word. What I mean by a churchy word is a word that is pretty much exclusive to the church. There are a number of words that are essential to understanding what the kingdom is all about. Words like grace and hope. Those aren't churchy words because we understand those words from a number of different contexts. Grace is a beautiful thing. Hope is a beautiful thing. From whatever angle you go after, it's an essential part of the kingdom, but it's not a churchy word. Repent, most of us would say that's kind of a churchy word. And in my opinion, I think because it's a churchy word, it shouldn't be used towards those who are outside of the church. So I just don't think it's, it's the most helpful thing to say to somebody, repent, when they have no clue what that word means, when some of us don't even know what that word means. And so I think it's more fair for us to say, okay, Jesus, you told us to repent. What does that mean for us? Or for us to challenge one another, you know, carefully with a word like that, repent. What does the word mean? The word in Greek is the word metanoia which kind of sounds like a description of uh, New England football fans. They're meta-annoying. You you might understand it that way, but in Greek, it is a little bit different. It's actually two words, meta and noia. Meta means change, and noia means mind. That the word repent literally means change your mind. It means change your thinking about a particular issue, about a particular topic. Change your thinking. Jesus is king, but he's not a dictator. He did not come and say, here's what the kingdom looks like. Here's what you need to do. No questions asked. That's not the way he led. That's not the way he loved. Instead, over a three-year period, he tells stories. He inspires people. He gives parables, and he has different characters, and he says, who in this story do you want to be? Do you want to be this person or do you want to be that person? There's an inspiration. There's a, to, there's, a, there's, an, 
There's an invitation to think differently about a number of different topics of life. Think differently about relationships, about marriage, about money, etc. Jesus invites us to think differently. He doesn't command us to think differently. He invites us into that. Invites us to change our minds about different things that we're experiencing. And so we have a certain experience over here. We have a certain uh, college professor who says this. We have a, a, a certain book that we read over here. And Jesus just says, go ahead, read that stuff. Talk to whatever you want. Engage whatever. But, but what does the kingdom look like? And so Jesus invites us, will you change your mind? Will you think differently and align with the ways of the kingdom? Will you think differently? For example... When I was younger, in middle school and, and high school, I thought that stealing was okay as long as I didn't get caught. As long as I was smart enough to avoid getting caught, or smart, whatever, if I was conniving enough, I could take something from my uh, uh, parents, or I could take something from the place where I was working, uh, whatever. And so I, that's what I thought was okay. But later on, I changed my mind. And, and then after that, in high school and in college, my thinking, my thought was that alcohol was necessary as far as socializing at those stages of life, that that's, that's what was required at certain events in order to engage and be a part of what was happening. But, the, but that was when I started to really kind of gain an understanding of who Jesus was and what the kingdom was, and so I changed my mind. More recently, I used to think, that it was my God-given right by birth to watch and enjoy as much hockey as I wanted. <laughs> that I did, that if my team was in the playoffs or if my team had a game or whatever, I'm allowed to watch whatever I want. Just that's, that's my right. But I changed my mind. My wife helped me out with that one. But it's just, it's just this issue of, of changing my thinking. Am I willing to change my mind? Jesus invites us to say, to say, think differently. Think differently. So, so read what Scripture has to say. Have conversations with people. Write in your journal. Go through a, a journaling experience and have conversations with people in a group. And, oh, I've never thought of it that way. I want to think differently about that part of my life. And there's an invitation to change our minds because that's what the kingdom is calling us to do. But that's still not the hard part. Changing our thinking, changing our mind is an essential part of repentance. But there is a part of repentance that, that is mandatory in the understanding of the word, and that is that it must lead to action. It's not just thinking. It doesn't stop at thinking. That repentance leads to doing something. It leads to some kind of change happening in your life. I was reading through my uh, family journals recently, and I, I was just reading through this exchange that I had with my son Martin when he was two years old. And I was trying to help him understand, trying to help him think differently about his whining as a response to requests that I would have, which is always a, a very reasonable thing to, you know, have an intellectual conversation with a two-year-old about these things. And so I sat him down, and, and I, just said, I just said, hey, Martin, can we think differently about whining? Because it would be great if you would respond to requests that I have without 
whining. And he would say, okay, Daddy. And then I said, Martin, do you know what whining is? And he says, no, Daddy. And so then I, I said, well, I tried to explain it to him. I said, it's kind of a combination of words and crying. And so, and I kind of gave him an example. That's what whining is. And so he says, oh, okay, Daddy. And so then I said, because again, I'm trying to help his thinking. And so then I said, so how about next time? For example, if I say, uh, Martin, it's time to brush your teeth. A great response would be to say, okay, Daddy. Does, does that make sense? He says, he says, yeah. He says, okay, Daddy, I won't do that anymore. He learned that was an important phrase somehow to get me to back off. I won't do that anymore. And then I said, okay, Martin, let's try it. Let's try it. Okay, ready? Okay, Martin, it's time to go brush your teeth. And he said, I don't want to brush my teeth. I don't want to play. I don't want to play. I, don't want to play. I, want to. I mean, he instantly goes, okay, it's not enough to just say the words. It's not enough even to feel remorse. There's actually a different version of the word metanoia that is later on in the book of of Matthew, and it describes Judas' response to betraying Jesus. And it says that, that Judas felt remorse for what he had done, but his remorse didn't lead to a change of actions. You can say the right words or have the right feelings or whatever, but it has to lead to action that repentance is not just changing our thinking, but it leads to some kind of action. That makes sense because typically when we use the phrase, I changed my mind, it's connected to some kind of action. Somebody shows up at an event, you didn't expect them to be there, and you say, oh, I didn't think you were coming. And they say, well, I changed my mind. I changed my mind, and so that led to an action that has me present for that experience. Oh, you're gonna take this case? I didn't think you were gonna take this case. Oh, I changed my mind. And in changing my mind, that led to an action. So now I am going to take the case. It's not just what we say. It's not just a feeling of remorse. It leads to an, an actionable change, which is how I want to uh, close out here today, is to talk about the possibility of there being an action that changes as a result of our mind changing. This week, this Wednesday in the Christian calendar is a day referred to as Ash Wednesday. And what it, what it means is this, it's the start of a season called Lent. And uh, Lent is the season between Ash Wednesday and Easter. And typically what it, what it is, is it's a season of reflection in preparation for the celebration of Easter in seven or so weeks. So throughout this whole series, this is the Lent season. And, and, and what Lent means is it means taking some kind of action in our lives for that period of time. Typically, it means we either uh, stop doing something or we start doing something. And maybe the thing we choose to stop doing is something that, is, that we feel uh, God wants to change in our lives. Maybe it's some part of our garage, our spiritual garage, that God wants us to clean out. Just to say, for that period of time, I'm going to stop eating that thing or drinking that thing or participating in that activity or playing that game that seems to have a little bit more control over me than, than, uh, than it should. It might even be something over that Lent period that is not a sin. It's not a sin. It's just maybe something that it would be a good experience for you as part of the kingdom to have your, your, your thinking changed over that period of time. It could also be that we add something, that we change our schedule by, by 
uh, spending time with God in the morning, by reading scripture, by having, uh, by, have, by having a prayer experience over that period of time that we don't normally have. So it's an invitation. It's not a mandate by any means. It's an invitation to think differently over a period of time. The kingdom of heaven has come near because Jesus is king. If you believe that, then between now and Easter, are you willing to think differently about some part of your life? If you believe that, are you willing to not only think differently, but do something, have some kind of change in activity and action that flows out of that belief? The kingdom of heaven is here. It has come because Jesus is king. And that, king is in, that kingdom is invasive. How willing are we between now and Easter to let that kingdom have some kind of change in our lives? What I want to do before I send you out is I just want to pray with you and give you a moment as a part of this prayer to see if there's something the Holy Spirit wants to drop into you about what could be your Lent experience between now and Easter. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, I thank you for the image of the kingdom, for the metaphor of the kingdom. God, I pray that you would help us understand that over these next few weeks. God, that we would understand this is a this isn't a, a Sunday morning spiritual conversation. This is a radical transformation of, of how all of life works, of how our politics work, how our, our plans for the future work, how our relationships work, that you are in charge. You are the king. So Father, would you hear in this moment, in whatever way you choose to do, would you invite us into a Lent experience between now and Easter that is perfectly tailored to our situation? So God, in this next moment, would you whisper to us, come, we want to hear your still small voice. Would you speak to us individually? In what way would you like us to make a change, to think differently over these next seven weeks? And now, Father, I pray that you'd give us the strength and enough trust in you to watch that happen. And we are excited about celebrating Easter, and we're excited about celebrating what you do in and through us as we embrace you as king and as we embrace the kingdom. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, who is Lord and king. Amen.